indeed. Here we go then, brand new series, Just Jesus. Uh, small groups begin meeting uh, this week. Sermons will be uh, available online as they normally are, together with uh, uh, the slides that I use if you want to check out uh, some of the things afterwards. Okay, you ready? <laughs> your enthusiasm is... Uh, Overwhelming. Okay, keep your Bibles open. You'll need them open. Uh, just where we were reading, page 928, 938? 983, close. 983. Uh, leave it open in, in uh, front of you. Uh, you'll need it there. And we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 13, where Lou began uh, to read a really important conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So we have here right at the beginning a big question. And I'm going to dare to suggest this morning that not only is it a big question, it is actually the biggest question that we can be asked. Who is Jesus? It's a big question because of the utterly unprecedented impact Jesus has made on our world. Think with me for a minute about his global impact. Jesus, born in obscurity, in a place nobody had hardly heard of, was raised in Nazareth, even less well-known. And yet, 2,000 years later, he remains the most famous, the most important, the most significant person in the whole of our history. In our world where leaders rise and fall and icons come and go and celebrities grace our stage, but for a moment, Jesus' longevity is utterly unprecedented, unequaled. Today, about a third of the world's population consider themselves to be Christian, living to follow Jesus and to worship him as God. To Muslims, another 20% of the world's population, Jesus is a great prophet. The ethical code that Jesus introduced has done more than anything else to undergird the world's thinking about morality, politics, legal systems, and so on, especially in the West. At the turn of the millennium, a Newsweek article read, by any secular standard, Jesus is the dominant figure of Western culture. It goes on like the millennium itself. Much of what we now think of as Western ideas, inventions and values finds its source or inspiration in the religion that worships God in his name. Art and science, the self and society, politics and economics, marriage and the family, right and wrong, body and soul, all have been touched and often radically transformed by the Christian influence. 2,000 years later, we still use his words in our everyday language. We talk about the prodigal son. We talk about an act of turning the other cheek. We talk about not casting stones. And we point out the good Samaritan. We even use his name as a swear word. Imagine using another name. Imagine banging your thumb with a hammer and going, Oh, Gordon Brown. It somehow just doesn't seem quite right. It doesn't, not the blaspheming seems right, but you, somehow it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. There is something about Jesus that we just can't get away from. Think of his historical impact. For 2,000 years, world's great powers and ideologies have so often tried to oppose Jesus and all that he stood for, whether it be the first century Romans or the 20th century communists. 
And the result is always the same. There's a big struggle, the power rises and then wanes. And when the dust settles and the empire is gone, Jesus and his followers remain. Every time you turn on your computer and the date flashes in the bottom right-hand corner, you are honouring Jesus, who made such a difference in history that we date his coming around the way we date our days. H.G. Wells, the great historian, put it like this, and he's not a Christian. He says, I'm, I'm an historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Napoleon writes, everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly as being by himself. I search in vain in history to find similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity, nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it. Here everything is extraordinary. And consider not just his uh, global and historical impact, think about his personal impact. Christianity today has millions of followers on every continent. Around the globe, as the sun rises and sets, people all over will praise the name of the Lord. Hundreds of millions say, He has changed my life. They say that you can gauge the size of a ship by the wake that it leaves. 2,000 years on, this whole world is tossed in his wake. Love him or hate him, we don't seem to be able to get away from him. Blockbuster films are devoted to him still like The Matrix. Pop culture is still fascinated by him like Madonna's Confessions Tour. TV can't leave him alone like Jerry Springer. Authors still try to reduce him like Dan Brown and The Da Vinci Code. What is it about this Jesus that we cannot get away from? Soon after the first Christians began preaching and teaching, the religious authorities were incensed and they wanted to try and do everything they could to get away uh, from Jesus and to, to reduce, to suppress all that was going on in his name. And a wise teacher said to them, look, if it really is from God, you'll never stop this thing, you know. If it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And now still today, his influence is greater than ever. It cannot, will not be stopped. He never wrote a book, but more books are about him than any other figure in human history. The nearest thing we have to his biography, the New Testament, has been translated into more than 1,500 languages. He never painted a picture, composed a piece of music, or poetry of any kind, but his life and teaching has been the subject of, no, of greater output of songs, plays, poetry, you know, all the stuff. And more remarkable still, he never raised an army. But millions of people have laid down their lives for his cause. It is calculated that every year the almost unbelievable number of 330,000 people will be martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's unstoppable. His impact will go on. And so I ask you, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? It's a really big question. 
But Jesus made it not only a really big question, Jesus made it the biggest question of all. Because he says that our future, collectively and individually, is in his hands. His future impact makes this question the biggest question any of us can ask. Jesus says, what you think about me will be the way that you are judged at the end of time. Jesus says that ultimately, whether we acknowledge him or not, will affect our eternal destiny. Whoever acknowledges me, I will also acknowledge before my Father. But whoever disowns me, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And he goes on another time to say, people are going to come at the end of time and say, hey, we were really good, weren't we, Jesus? We did this and we did that and we did the other. And the Bible says that Jesus will say to far too many people, actually, if the truth be told, when it all comes down, you never, never knew me. It's a big question, isn't it? It's the biggest question. Who is this Jesus that my whole future rests upon? So if we get the big question in verse 13, we get the many answers in verse 14. I hope it's still open uh, there in front of you. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All of these different types of people they're saying, all the superheroes of the Old Testament uh, and John and, and some of the others. But that's not all they were saying about who Jesus was. Others were saying, well, he's a good man. He's a good man. Uh, you remember the rich young ruler that came up and said, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Please come next Sunday. Next Sunday is really, really important if we're going to get this whole series straight. Really important. Because whatever else Jesus was, he could not possibly have just been a good man. Come next Sunday as we explore that together. Some said he was a good man. Others uh, said he, he was divisive. He was a deceiver. And many people have been trapped by his deception. He deceives the people. Others have said that he's a glutton or a drunkard. And verse 14 also reminds us that as in those days, people had many ideas about Jesus. So today, people also have many ideas about him. Many pictures, images, thoughts about who Jesus was and is. A very popular idea is the sentimentalist Jesus. The Jesus encapsulated in the prayer my dad was taught to pray. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. You learned it too. Jesus who is warm and cuddly, but about as challenging as a teddy bear. Or the stained glass Jesus. Jesus who's kind of locked and trapped behind religious ritual and the mysticism of the church. Or the existentialist Jesus who can be any kind of Jesus you like. He makes no demands, only the ones you allow him to make. Or the new age Jesus who was just the best at channeling the guru energy or the yogi as it's called. The skeptics Jesus, well we can believe anything about Jesus except what the Bible tells us because doubt is fashionable these days. Uh, and you get things like the Da Vinci Code. The liberal Jesus where we can get rid of the, the miracles and the resurrection and everything modern scientific man finds hard to accept. Or the fraudulent Jesus whose total goal in life was to deceive many people 
people and millions today are caught in his web of deception. Or the married Jesus. You know that he got married to Mary Magdala and they ran off and she raised uh, his son in Marseille of all places and uh, a secret society was formed. The confused Jesus who just got swept along by the politics of his day and ended up totally against his will or intention being killed. The confused, uh, uh, oh, we've done that, when the failed Jesus used hypnotic techniques that the disciples would automatically hallucinate his post-resurrection appearances. The lost years of Jesus, did you know that after the age of 12, when he got lost in the temple, imagine those three days for Mary and Joseph, all they got to do is look after Jesus and they lost him. And then apparently he went away to India, Tibet and Japan, the missing years of Jesus. The magical Jesus, the magician who specialised in magical rites, or I love this one, the mushroom Jesus. Jesus is seen as a pseudonym for an ancient hallucinogenic mushroom used by people who, came the first, who became the first century Christians. Quite fancy having a go at that one. The non-existent Jesus, a mythical figure arising out of Paul's mythical experience. The revolutionary Jesus who died as a victim unjustly executed because he sided with the poor and the dispossessed. A feminist Jesus who could have been war born a woman but was born a man and brought womanhood from the margins the prosperity Jesus who heals everybody and gives people what they desire assuring believers that they uh, can have absolute power over sin sickness and circumstances and there are many many more and you will find all of these expressed in different ways today who is this Jesus in the midst of all this sea of who Jesus might be and might not be, we have verse 15, when Jesus says, what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Verse 14 tells us that there are many answers. Verse 15 reminds us that it's my answer that is all important. You see, the issue concerning Jesus is a hugely personal one. Who Jesus is is not just about debate in universities or around the coffee table. It's not just a pleasant conversation for days out in the country like these disciples. It's directed, pointed at each one of us. Who is this Jesus? The question that will define our life on earth and decide our destiny when we die. Who is he? It's not about your neighbour or the person sitting in the pew next to you or your family or your friends. Jesus says it's about you. Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Do you know in your family there are always questions that your spouse will answer? This one's for you. Who Who do you say? Who do you say I am? So there are many answers and Jesus is asking for my answer. If he walked in this morning and said, okay, who do you say I am? What would my answer be? Would I be ready? Or am I still getting tossed around in the sea of the many, many and the weird and the wonderful answers that there are? And so we move through this passage. I hope it's still open in front of you. We have the many answers of verse 14, the challenge to know my answer in verse 15, and then we hear the mega answer in verse 16. In the midst of many muddled, confused and conflicting thoughts that suffocate the truth comes the clear, fresh air of Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And inside all of us at this point should rise a yes. 
That's it, Peter. Forget about Elijah and Jeremiah and even John the Baptist. Forget about New Age mystics, the liberal weirdos and the existential bird brains. This Jesus, this solitary life that has single-handedly affected the whole course of human history, this Galilean prophet in whose gigantic wake we continue to be tossed is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Anyone agree? cheer, round of applause, all that would have been just okay at that time. Not, not too inappropriate. And Jesus is euphoric. He's going, yeah, Peter's got it. Verse 17 to 19, Jesus is going, whoopee. He's beside himself with excitement. And that's what happens when we move from the many answers to the mega answer. Jesus goes, whoopee, there's a party in heaven, the Bible says. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Do you want to be blessed? Then make the move from the many to the mega answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, of Hades, will not overcome it. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Hey, Jesus, Jesus is pretty excited. Of course, he was a religious chap, so he kind of said it like this. He said, Peter, if you get this, Peter, if you get this, you will live up to the nickname that I have given you. Peter, which means the rock. And on this rock of truth concerning me, a fantastic play on words in these verses, I can build my church in and through your lives, and it will be so strong that the gates of hell will not even stand against it. And for two thousand years, those words of Jesus have not failed. Okay, another opportunity for a cheer around applause. You missed it. Way out. Way out. Two thousand years, they have not failed. I ask you, have you moved from the many answers to the mega answer? It's the place of true blessing. It's the place where you take up your position in this great movement of God that the darkness of this world, the darkness of hell itself, will not overcome. It's the place where you hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven and have your place in it that will always be guaranteed, come what may. Okay, so we're moving through these verses. The next bit's really important. Well, it's all really important, (laughs) Now that bit was really important too. It's all really important. But this bit's really important too. Okay, so we've had the big question, which turned out to be the biggest question. And we've had the many answers. And the challenge of what Jesus is looking for is my answer and then the mega answer. And then in good question of sports style, I ask you what happened next? You see, in verse 17 to 19, Jesus is euphoric. And Peter has discovered his central place in the kingdom of heaven. Things are looking pretty good, wouldn't you say? Now move just four verses with me to verse 23. Just four verses. There's a heading there that wasn't there originally. No break in the text. Just four verses later. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Whoa. Where'd that come from? In four verses, Jesus has gone from rejoicing to rebuking. And Peter has gone from being useful to totally useless. And Jesus says, get out of the way. You're no use to me now. It's not a great day when the Son of God calls you Satan, is it? 
One only assumes that Jesus had not quite finished the training module on tact and diplomacy. But why the change? Why the change from rejoicing to rebuking? Why the change from being so useful to being useless? This is really important. Sets the whole scene for our weeks together. What Jesus had done was to expose the utterly deficient understanding Peter had of who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, but despite that, he had his own agenda about what the Christ would do when he came and how he would do it. So when Jesus starts talking about suffering and being killed, as he does in verse 21, Peter can't compute it. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't want to understand it. And he begins to try and make Jesus conform to his own agenda rather than listening carefully to Jesus' agenda. So, So Peter takes Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you're off your head. You've got it all wrong. You're making mistakes. Never, Lord. This isn't, it's not going to be like this. This shall never happen to you. He didn't want Peter a suffering Messiah. In his agenda, there was no place for a suffering Messiah, let alone a dead one. He had created a Messiah, a Jesus, around his own agenda. And instead of Peter conforming to Jesus, Peter was trying to get Jesus to conform to him. Do you see? Hello? This is, this is, this is the crux of the whole weeks we spend together. Are we going to be those that conform to Jesus? Or are we going to try and get Jesus to conform to us? You see, I wonder, have we done the same thing? But instead of conforming to Jesus, we have made Jesus conform to us. We've made up our minds what Jesus should be like based on our own agenda, our own thoughts, our own needs and wants and so created a Jesus that conforms to our own ideas rather than confronts them. A Jesus who is like us, who says and does the things we want him to. As I say on the website where all the details are and the dates and all that stuff, we've created a Jesus in our image who fits our plans. And because we are safe and comfortable and middle-of-the-road kind of people, we've built around Jesus the idea that he's safe and comfortable and middle-of-the-road too. And he's none of those things. You see, we think we know what Jesus is all about. But I wonder whether our dominant impression of him says more about us than it does about who he actually is. Perhaps now I've highlighted the issue, your answer might be different. But if yesterday I asked you off the cuff, what was or what is Jesus like, I suspect what would come to the fore would be from each one of us, myself included, something very one-dimensional, a one-sided view of Jesus that fits comfortably with our own agenda of what we need or want him to be. And when these first disciples thought about the Messiah, they were blinded by their own ideas. And I think we are too. We're so caught up in what we think about Jesus, so familiar with talking and thinking about him in a particular way, that we no longer really see him. Maybe you know what it's like to look at something that's familiar to you and see something that you haven't seen about it before. Remember once wearing a cardigan for about the 700th time, and I was sure it had stripes on both arms, but this time it only had one. Who took the stripe away? 
You're so familiar with things, we think we know, but we don't. A few days ago, uh, we'd walk around the corner to the shop at the moment for Kerry. That's a big expedition. And on the way back, we were walking from the shop, literally, painfully, slowly. And I noticed for the first time a large, striking house on the corner, just round from us, on Rushmere Road, which I'd never really appreciated before. Now, I've passed that house on foot almost every day for the past ten years. But my familiarity with Rushmere Road, the sights and the smells, the sounds that I I know so well, had forced me or, or led me into thinking I knew what was there, I knew what could be seen, and so as I walked each day, I, I no longer actually saw. And in the same way, we know the Gospels, we know who Jesus is and what he does, or so we think. And so I wonder if we are no longer actually really seeing. My bet is that when we read the Gospels, the Jesus we find there is nothing like as well-known or as predictable as the Jesus we think we know. You see, in the Gospels, he says and does puzzling things. He tells people sometimes to keep a miracle quiet, and he cursed a fig tree. He's often really hard on people, like the Pharisees, the rich young ruler, or Peter in these verses that we've got before us this morning. He sometimes makes extreme demands. He lives on the edge. He's passionate, wild sometimes. He seems much harder to predict, much harder to pin down than the Jesus we so casually and frequently talk about, the Jesus we think we know. That's why I really want you to get into these uh, readings day by day with an open heart, an open mind, and open eyes. To get back to the real Jesus. Not what we think he is, not what we think he should be, but the Jesus he actually is. And we find him in the Gospels, sometimes very different from what we expect. Hey, Mark is the shortest Gospel. Let me summarize it for you in just two minutes. Is this the Jesus you know? Okay, that's the question. Is this the Jesus you know? Mark chapter 1, Jesus yells at complete strangers to repent of their sins, a bit like the weirdos who walk through town with the billboards on, repent or die. He then orders some guys to quit their jobs and follow him. He tells a demon to shut up, heals a leper, only to tell him to shut up too. That's Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 2, Jesus picks a fight with some well-mannered religious types and does the equivalent of breaking into a church on a Sunday and stealing the communion bread because he's hungry. Mark chapter 3, Jesus gets angry, grieves, and is so focused they think he's gone mad. He ignores his mum and sends discussion about the Hebrew family into a frenzy. In chapter 4, he rebukes the wind. In chapter 5, he kills 2,000 pigs, creating a bacon famine. Can you imagine the animal rights activists? They're doubling their efforts now. In chapter 6, he offends people and looks like he needs to go to some extra sensitivity training. In chapter 7, some religious people have come to ask him some questions. And he rather cruelly calls them hypocrites and launches into a tyrannical against them, showing absolutely no tolerance whatsoever for their alternative theological lifestyle. You with me? Jesus, you know. In chapter 8, he sighs in frustration, spits on a blind man who didn't even see it coming, and calls Peter Satan. Mercifully, no one is sued for assault or slander. You know, would someone put this Jesus back in his box? In chapter 9, Jesus gets sick of people and says, how long do I have to put up with you? That gives great freedom to me as a minister. How long? Jesus can do it, and so can I. If he can have a paddy, I will. Just before telling people to cut off their hands and gouge out their eyes. In chapter 10, he tells the rich guy to sell all his money. Chapter 11, he gets some of his men to take a donkey without asking. Curses a fig tree, which upsets all the environmentalists. And then he gets respectable, he gives respectable taxpaying small businesses a right whipping. 
chapter 12, Jesus says people are wrong and don't know their Bibles. He seems to show a complete lack of respect to the postmoderns with their narrow epistemology. And he tells some Sunday school teachers, by the way, you're going to hell. In chapter 13, he threatens to destroy the temple, putting the nation on a heightened security alert. You had to take off your sandals before boarding a camel. And in chapter 14, he yells at his friends for taking a nap all through the night. Chapter 15, the religious leaders kill him, and no one seems to mind except a few women. In chapter 16, he's alive again, and astonished, terrified disciples finally get it. <gasps> at last. And they go out to handle snakes and try and offend the whole world with the gospel. That's it. That's Mark's gospel. It's not the Jesus we readily think about, is it? No, I'm not saying the Jesus that we sometimes think about isn't there woven in the story, but there's so much more. I tell you, the Gospels are not what we think because Jesus is not what we think. We've dumbed him down, we've softened him up, we've stolen his roar. See, one of the names the Bible gives for Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and it's about time the Lion gets his roar back. It's time that the magnificent Jesus, who knew what he stood for and stood for what he knew and whose kingdom will have no end, is lifted high and honoured again for who he is and all that he is. Jesus went with Peter from rejoicing to rebuking because for as long as Peter's own agenda got in the way, for as long as Peter could only see what he thought Jesus should be, what he thought Jesus should do, he was useless to Jesus. So Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me now. You do not have in mind the things of Christ, but the things of men. You see, he's a Christian. He knew Jesus was the Christ, but he, he'd put on to Jesus all this other stuff that just wasn't anything to do with the real Jesus. How useful do you want to be? Here we are, we want to be useful for Jesus, don't we? We want to be part of that church, that true church of his, that the gates of hell will not destroy. We want to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven in our hands. Then we have to conform to Jesus and stop trying to get him to conform to us. You see, despite his confession... Peter was useless. And I think sometimes it's no different with us. We know he's the Christ, but we've dumbed him down and softened him up. We've stolen his roar. And we wonder why we have no punch anymore. Scott Peck, the author of The Road Less Travelled, uh, writes, uh, it occurred to me that if the gospel writers had been into PR and embellishment, as I had assumed, he he uh, read the Gospels and came to faith through reading the stories of, of Jesus. It occurred to me that if the Gospel writers had been into PR and embellishment, as I had assumed, they would have created the kind of Jesus three quarters of Christians still seem to be trying to create. Portrayed with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on the head, just strolling the earth with his unflappable, unshakable uh, equanimity. But the Jesus of the Gospels, who some suggest is the best-kept secret of Christianity, the Jesus of the gospel, the best kept secret in the church, did not have much peace of mind as we ordinarily think of peace of mind in the world's terms. And insofar as we can be his followers, perhaps we won't either. Hey, we don't need our own ideas and we don't need our own agendas and our own preconceptions. All we need, all we need is Jesus, just Jesus.
real, raw, undiluted, totally wild, king of the nations, Jesus. Jesus. That's all we need. Let's pray.